prophet Isaiah says, cry out loudly, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways, like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted, but you have not seen? We have denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. Look, you do as you please on the day of your fast and oppress all of your workers. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this? A day for a person to deny himself and to bow his head like a reed and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to God? Isn't this the fast that I choose? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? Then your light will appear like the dawn, and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger-pointing and malicious speaking, and if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness, and your night will be like noonday. The Lord will always lead you, satisfy you in a parched land, and strengthen your bones. You will be like a water garden and like a spring whose water never runs dry. Some of you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will restore the foundations laid long ago. You will be called the repairer of broken walls, the restorer of streets where people live. This is the word of the Lord, and if you agree with me, say, thanks be to God. What is good worship to you? People visit churches all the time, and it's interesting to hear comments about how people think about, you know, worship. I like this, didn't like this. Coffee was cold, it wasn't fair trade, it wasn't local and organic, uh, the temperature wasn't right for me, you know, it was a little chilly, a little hot, uh, I didn't like the teachers, boring, whatever, um, I, what, what is good worship to you? Um, you know, for, there, there's times when I, when I leave church, and I'm like, man, that was just, that was awesome, and I feel so great, and I don't know if you have those experiences where you really feel like maybe it was summer camp at Spring Hills, maybe that's the last time you've experienced good worship, right, Krista, like, so many people, I'm amazed at how many people have been influenced by Spring Hills camp, and it's great, Maybe it was a summer camp experience. Maybe it was um, a worship conf- con- conference or concert that you attended. Maybe it's church on Sunday morning. Maybe it's something spontaneous in somebody's home uh, overseas. You've been a part of a house church movement. I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but what would you do if you left, like let's just say today, and you really have felt connected and excited to worship, and people are getting baptized, people are joining this church and this community uh, you, you've sang these songs that have rich gospel content, you've listened to the teaching of God's word, we take communion together, and we leave this place and God were to show up and say, shut it down. I'm not pleased with what happened today. I mean, that, that might be jarring for some of us who think that worship is all about how, what kind of experience was curated and delivered, right, and was consumed. And, and what's interesting here, so we're, we're in the middle of this this uh, fasting series. And we've been talking about 
um, fasting as a tool for spiritual formation. And we've talked about kind of the personal dimensions of fasting, how fasting is a response to God in the midst of life's sacred moments. And we gave four different reasons for fasting. And, and most of those, we tend to focus on kind of our own experience with God, the kind of vertical dimensions of fasting. And, and we'll talk next week about fasting to feast on God's presence. We've talked about our bodies, and we've talked about what it looks like to respond in the different seasons of life. But Isaiah wants to draw our attention to something completely different. He, he wants to redefine fasting. In fact, what we see here is a community that God is chastising for their practice of fasting, which should tell us that we need to be careful in how we fast, right? It's easy to get off track in how we think about disciplines like fasting or prayer or scripture, right? They can be twisted and distorted and, and misused. And, and we see a God here who's angry, who's frustrated with his people. And so I want to talk about why God is angry with their fasting and, and, and the true fast that God invites us to uh, participate in. And it might be surprising because... Um, I became a Christian as a teenager, and I can't say that I've ever heard a message on this, and so that may be my own fault, or maybe the traditions I grew up in, but um, God is clearly angry here with something, and we need to pay attention if we're going to think about the kind of fasting that God wants to invite us to experience as his people. And so um, it's important to understand the context of this passage. What he's talking about here, uh, he's talking to a people that are uh, most likely celebrating Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur, as you know, if you know anything about the Jewish people, is the Day of Atonement. It's the day where they would set aside for self-examination and um, corporately and individually confession and repentance. And it was a day when they would call the entire community to an absolute fast. No food and no water for 24 hours. And if you read the book of Leviticus, the specific instruction is deny yourselves and then and then live into this, this reality of the kingdom of God. That word deny yourself is literally the word afflict your throat in the Hebrew. So th there's this idea of a, of a whole person response to the gravity and the weight of sin, right? Where we sit in and we don't just treat sin as a defect or as, well, everybody, you know, it's just to be human is to be, to err, right? Like it's, no, it's sitting in the seriousness of sin against a holy God and literally our whole person kind of experiencing the weight and the gravity of that. And so Yom Kippur was a time of fasting. And what's interesting here to me is God is calling them out for like very surprising things. So he says to Isaiah, hey boss, grab the trumpet and I want you to proclaim sin, to call my people to repentance, and so the trumpet was used to, like, kind of call people to worship, right? I'm, I'm all for, like, reinstituting this in broader. We'll just get out and start playing the trumpet really loud on Sundays and calling people to worship, whatever. But he's calling them to a day of fasting, and he says, declare to my people their transgressions, their sins. Now, what's fascinating is what makes the list of sins, right? It's not, like, these kind of like historic Midwestern, I love this testimony, by the way, it's just so Midwestern, right? Like so many of us grow up in, um, in, in the church, and yet our hearts can be far from God. And yet there's hopefulness if you're a parent, like raising kids in the church, like that God is still working and his grace is still sufficient. And, and, but it, like, it's not what you might think of when you think of sin. Like, you know, I was taught like growing up, sin is like gambling and, you know, violence and like all these crazy things. Notice what's sin here. He says, you seek me daily. Like you have a sustained commitment to following me. You, that you delight to know my ways and draw near. There's a passionate intensity for intimacy with God. They fasted and they humbled themselves. They ba literally bowed down their head, which is the posture for worship and prayer. 
And they spread sackcloth and ashes, which was the posture of repentance, to turn away from living one way and to turn towards God and living another. Now, the question that you, you probably ask yourself is, what's wrong with any of these behaviors or actions? Like, as a pastor, I'm like, I, I want people seeking God daily. I want people delighting to know his ways, to draw near to him, to fast, to humble themselves, to repent. Like, this to me is almost like a portrait of a mature disciple of Jesus. And what we need to see here is that the problem, Isaiah is saying, is not the intensity of their desire for intimacy with God. The problem is their lack of inclusivity in who gets to experience the benefits of God's presence. So it's not their intensity, it's their lack of inclusivity. That's what's happening here. Isaiah is warning us that there is a way of fasting that can unleash renewal in the world, right? And so you see here at the end of the passage, all of these signs of renewal, right? Like water springing up in dry places. You see, talk about rebuilding ancient ruins. These are, this is language for renewal, like God's renewing presence in the world. And that's what can happen through disciplines like fasting and prayer is God brings renewal through his people, right? We've said um, all along in all of our spiritual formation series, all of these disciplines, all of these practices that are given to us are not just given to us for us. We practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. So he's saying there's a way to do fasting that unleashes renewal, and there's a way of doing it that actually can harm others and hinder us from experiencing the wholeness that God wants for us. So the problem here is not, again, not fasting. It's how they're fasting. You might call this selfish fasting, right? Selfish fasting is the pursuit of self-fulfillment without self-giving. It's the pursuit of self. Notice he says, what you're after as you fast is to try to get God's attention so that God will give you pleasure, right? That's this idea. You seek pleasure. You seek experiences. You seek a certain state of feeling a certain way about God and about yourself. The problem is not that you want pleasure. It's that you want it without giving. He says, you're saying, why do we fast and you don't see it? Like, this is fasting that's become about performance. God, we're performing. We're doing the right things. We, we've, we've, we've got the technique down. God, why aren't you blessing our efforts? Why aren't you showing up? We see this well-intentioned, passionate group of religious people who are more preoccupied with the blessings that they're seeking after rather than who and what they're sharing their blessings with. They gave up food but they didn't give it to the hungry. They gave up consumerism, right? They gave up shopping, um, maybe, but they didn't bother to clothe and shelter their homeless neighbors. They took a long weekend for silence and some me time, but they didn't give their workers rest and fair wages. Somebody's got to pay for that me time, right? They humbled themselves before God to receive a forgiveness that they would not then turn around and extend to a close family member or friend who betrayed them. This is selfish fasting. And the reason it's selfish is because of its orientation. It's not the essence of fasting, it's the orientation of fasting. It is exclusively vertical. While God's heart for fasting, it's not less than vertical, but it's more. It's also horizontal. The fruit of their practice of fasting was individualistic, self-indulgent, and let's just call it maybe even competitive. The competitive pursuit of God's blessing. And the result was inequality, oppression, violence, and injustice. Now, um, I see this at work in my own family. 
I have four kids, as you know. One uh, almost 14, 12, 10, and 8. And uh, I love nothing more, although this is not happening as much as the kids uh, get older, I love nothing more than for uh, my kids to seek my attention and presence, right? To come and talk to me and ask me how my day went and for us to engage in conversation, for them to want to, maybe even uh, the girls now, the boys don't do this, thing, sit on my lap and like, you know, just, just I love when they come and say, Dad, can we go do something together? Can we go to Target? Like whatever, I, I'm like, yes, it's always a yes. If I can do it, I want to go. But what I've noticed about my kids is that sometimes they can have a scarcity mentality with my love, right? The way they approach me is, so they'll say like, can we spend time together? And can you not tell our brothers and sisters that we're going to Target because I want to go with just you? Now, I'm all for quality time. One-on-one time is important, right? But I think one of our even fears in having uh, a bunch of kids was that we felt like, man, we want to we give our best time and attention. And like, if we have multiple kids, you've got you to kind of like separate that out and, and divide that out. And if you live in a large family, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And there's always a sense of like, one kid feels like there's always like injustice and inequality happening all the time in a large family, right? <laughs> Typically the younger ones. And so um, what happens is they'll say, hey, can you just spend time with me? And, and it's this mentality of the more time I spend with their siblings, the less love that I'm going to have left over for them. As if love is, in economic terms, a scarce commodity. And all of us, I think, in different ways, and this leads to, like, sibling rivalry. This leads to always, almost always, somebody in tears because, you don't love me! And then it turns into, like, self-contempt. I don't even love me! Nobody loves me! My life is, oh, I mean, sometimes it's that dramatic, Right? And we can, we can kind of laugh about that, but the reality is the Bible teaches that love is not a scarce commodity. Love is not something we have to compete for as if it's a scarce resource. Love, actually, in the economy of God, multiplies through sharing. Paul says the more that we share, the more seed is given to sow. The more love, the more generosity begets more love and generosity, right? The more sharing, counterintuitively, the more love there is to go around, it has a multiplier effect in our lives. This is an abundance mentality. This is the way of Jesus, right? Not a scarcity mentality and a competitive framework, but one of abundance. Now, we live in a world that operates off the principle of competition. It's woven into, like, capitalism, a capitalistic society, right? It's mine at the expense of yours. We have more of a scarcity mindset, right, where it's like, if you get yours, then I'm not going to get mine. And, and what we see here operating is this kind of principle of competition in the community of faith. It's almost like this quid pro quo relationship with God. God, we'll do these things if you'll give us these things, but don't tell our brothers and sisters over here who are poor. We want blessings, but there's only so much to go around. And, and I would argue not much has changed over the thousands of years since Isaiah spoke these words to the Israelites. We are inclined towards the same patterns as the people of God now. We aggressively seek religious experiences, even like here in the church, religious activities, platforms, Bible studies, prayer groups, worship events, all these things, which are good things, not bad things, teaching, podcasts, like we want all of these experiences, but we seek after them in selfish ways oftentimes. And what happens is we actually end up contributing. We are complicit in contributing to and being blind from the injustices it creates for our neighbors when we selfishly consume. We fast from food. We give up social media maybe for Lent. But the question is not what are we giving up, but what are we giving all of that marginal time and energy and money towards? 
oftentimes we just reinvest the dividends in ourselves. God says, it's not my way. This is the fast that I choose. It's not a selfish fast, but it's a fast that shares with other people. It's a, it's a fast that is compassionate. To really fast, God says, to seek me, if you want to know me, if you want to delight in me, then you need to get to know my heart, right? You get to know my wife. To know my wife is to know the things that she's passionate about and to start caring about those things. I've found even spending money on those things is a kind of stingy person. I've got to spend money and be generous towards those things that my wife enjoys. That's part of sharing her heart, sharing her passions, we see in Isaiah, what, we ask the question, what is God passionate about? Not just religious experiences and activities and teaching. God tells us what he's passionate about. This is a drumbeat starting in chapter 1. Almost every chapter in the book of Isaiah, God says, you want to know what I'm passionate about? You want to know my heart? Here it is, Isaiah 56, which this chapter is part of a larger section in Isaiah. Here's what God says. This is what I'm passionate about. Keep justice. Do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. When you see these two words put together in Hebrew, the two different words, righteousness and justice, you see these go throughout together as a pair and individually in other places, but when you see them together, uh, most commentators say the easiest way to translate this is social justice. And I don't mean like the way that you might think of social justice, the way it's talked about kind of outside of a faith framework. I'm just saying at its basic level, these words mean like righteousness is this idea of wholeness. Justice is this idea of including people who are created in the image of God in the goods of our society. You put those together, and uh, I'll just give you Bruce Waltke's definition here because it's helpful. He's an Old Testament scholar. He reads these words, and, and here's what he finds about words like righteousness in the book of Proverbs. Uh, he says, the wicked advantage themselves by disadvantaging others. The righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. So in other words, righteousness and justice are not just personal individual words with me and God. In the Old Testament, it's also fundamentally and essentially social. My righteousness has to do with how I treat other people. So what Isaiah is doing here is redefining fasting for the community of faith as not just something that I'm doing to enhance my relationship with God and my sense of personal well-being spiritually. He is redefining fasting as including what we'll call solidarity with the poor. Solidarity with the poor, right? We said fasting is always a response to sacred moments in life. So what is Isaiah responding to? What is this fasting responding to? Fasting here in Isaiah's vision is a response to the condition of the poor and the presence of injustice in their community. He says fasting is vertical, but it's also horizontal. It is individual, but it is deeply communal, right? And it's not either or of those things. It's a tension that we have to live in. It is both Literally, it's like imagining like sharing the heart of God is I am going to, I look out into the world and I look out into my neighborhood, I see injustice. And I'm going to, instead of just giving intellectual assent to that, I'm going to unite my whole person, my body, my spirit, first with God and seeing how God sees, but also with those people, real people, not just statistics, but real image bearers 
crying out for God's justice, for his power, for his provision. And I'm going to be in solidarity with them. I'm going to see them as myself. Now, before we jump in to talk about what that actually looks like, I want to give you some practical ideas on that. I just want to stop and say, when we talk about solidarity with the poor and we talk about our resources, I know that um, we, we are entering into territory that produces a lot of anxiety, right? Um, because we all have a story with money. And in Broad Ripple in particular, I find that there's a lot of anxiety around conversations with money and how we use our resources. And so as soon as I begin to talk about wealth or riches or poverty, that's going to be maybe a trigger for some of us. And we're going to import certain assumptions and biases that we carry with us from our families and from the larger political conversations happening. And I want to encourage you, if you would just take a moment and literally like suspend that, right? If you would just suspend that and listen to what the Bible has to say about um, our resources, about poverty, about God's heart for this. This is, any conversation about what I'm learning about money, any conversation about money is more emotional than it is financial. We have deep emotions. If you want to read more about this in terms of how the middle class often talks about money, and that's not all of us, but it is a lot of us in Broader Pool, there's a great article in The Atlantic a couple years ago called The Shame of the Middle Class. And they say the predominant emotion for middle class people when it comes to their finances is one of shame. Either shame over their powerlessness or shame over their privilege. And none of us really know what to do. And for most of us, it's a combination of both. So I know that's there, and I just want to encourage you. We, we've talked about money a lot in the past. We've talked about justice, and you can go back and, and listen to some of our other teachings on that. But can I just throw up on the screen like a quick framework as a reminder of what we mean and what we don't mean when we talk about wealth and possessions and poverty? So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just, these are things that we've taught before. We're on record with these things, and I just want you to know what we mean when we talk about Because the first question is, who are the poor? And who are the wealthy, right? That's the most obvious question. If we talk about solidarity with the poor, who exactly are the poor? Um, that's even a weird way to talk about uh, people, but that's what the Bible says. So we see this as a framework, right? God created people in his image to experience wholeness, right? Financially, spiritually, emotionally. So we, we see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God gives possessions to Adam and Eve, and he blesses, and he says it's very good, right? So wealth and possessions are not inherently sinful. They're not inherently evil. Uh, they are actually good gifts from our Father. See in Genesis 3 that um, sin enters into the world and distorts our relationship with God and with others and with creation. It unleashes chaos and injustice into kind of the, what you might call the systems of the world, the spiritual, relational, and social systems that then impact wealth creation and wealth distribution. And so the result of that, we see as early as Genesis chapter 5, brothers killing each other partly over wealth. Injustice, idolatry, inequality. Um, so we have this definition from Bryant Myers, who's one of the leading scholars on uh, poverty from a Christian standpoint. It's a really helpful definition. Poverty then is the result of relationships that don't work uh, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all of its meanings, shalom being that vision of wholeness. So what we then surmise, I think, from Bryant uh, Myers' uh, definition here is that all of us are poor in different ways on this side of the fall. For some, it's relational. For some, it's emotional. For some, it's intellectual. For some, it's spiritual. But all of us are poor in different ways. And so when we talk about the poor, we're really talking about all of us. And what Isaiah is specifically addressing is the material poor. 
right? The material poor. Jesus says the poor will always be with us, but it shouldn't be the same poor. Generation after generation. That's why you have the laws. That's why you have jubilee. That's why you have gleaning in the Old Testament. It shouldn't be the same poor. There will always be some level of inequality on this side of redemption, right? But Christians, especially, God says, are called to love, to honor, to dignify, to lift up, to care for the poor as God has done for them. So then we have now an ability to look at our possessions, to look at our wealth, should God bless us, and all of us have possessions to some extent or another, as things that can be redeemed and stewarded for God's purposes in the world, right? Neither the rich nor the poor should be idealized or stigmatized. And we do both with both. Everyone is invited to put their hope in God, not in their riches or lack thereof. So these are some of the kind of anchor points that will help us as we talk about who are the poor in Isaiah, who are the poor, who is Jesus talking about in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the poor. These are just some guidelines that can help us as we think about um, our possessions. And I want to encourage you to do some work there. Like, I don't know what your story is with money. I don't know where you came from. Some of you came from privilege. Um, some of you came from a, a situation of powerlessness. Like, all of that is in this room. If you didn't, your grandparents certainly have experienced some of that, right? And, and I just want to encourage you to explore and just to ask questions like, why do I feel so much anxiety around money? Why am I so uncomfortable with money? It's a good gift just like other things, food, drink, sex, relationships. Like, these are all gifts given by God. Why do we feel a particular anxiety and shame around our money? It's because, we, as Jesus says, he says, don't be anxious about your money He's saying that it's always the things that produces a certain amount of anxiety. And so I want to encourage you just to dig into your story because you'll never be able to relate in a healthy way to poverty if you don't claim your own story and claim your own truth there. Okay, so he's, fat, he's redefining fasting and solidarity with the poor. Now, I just want to point out a, a progression here. We don't have a ton of time, but a progression here um, in, in, in how fasting serves us in solidarity with the poor. The first thing that we see is he invites us to see fasting as the primary means through which God trains our hearts towards compassion, right? So notice the language here in, in verse 7. Is, uh, what's the fast that I call acceptable? What's the fast that I choose? Is it not to share your bread with the hunger, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, when you see them not to ignore your own flesh and blood, but rather to pour yourself out for the hungry? Fasting, he talks about sight, Fasting trains our hearts in compassion. Here's my definition of, of compassion. I forgot to put it on the screen. Compassion is seeing how God sees and feeling how God feels so that we can do as God does. Seeing with God's eyes, feeling with God's heart so that we can be the hands and feet of God and do what he would do if he were here in our bodies. Because he is. That's compassion. And what happens when we fast Scott McKnight, uh, who has a great book on fasting, calls this body poverty, right? Fasting is body poverty. It's, it's experiencing in our bodies reality. Our own spiritual poverty, our, our, uh, the, the, the physical and financial and economic poverty of others, it's, it's, it's feeling in our bodies and reminding us what's true about God, about ourselves, and about our neighbors. We don't often engage the poor because we don't see them. They're invisible to us often because of the pace of our lives. I can't remember the last time I heard somebody in Broderpool say, man, I got nothing to do, just sitting around, just enjoying life. 
No, what do we always say when you meet somebody? How's life going? I'm busy. Busyness is no friend to poverty. If we're worried about efficiency and effectiveness, we will miss the poor. The poor are invisible because of our assumptions and our prejudices. They are invisible because of our segregated lifestyles. Let's be honest, many of us just don't run in circles and our pattern of life does not take us into regular contact with the poor. And so my point is, often the first barrier to solidarity is our limited vision, our, our inability to just see them as fellow image bearers of God. And it's not just how we see them, our sight is also off kilter in how we see ourselves. Because this conversation, we often talk about the poor, that immediately introduces an us versus them framework. Like the poor are those people, right, who live in that part of town and go to those schools. They're the disadvantaged. We talk about this in our city a lot. Like there's poor schools and poor families. It creates an us versus them mentality. They are the disadvantaged and the poor we are the not disadvantaged and the not poor. We may not be wealthy, but we're not poor. Do you see what's happening here in this text? It's just a really cool ninja trick that Isaiah's doing here. He says, when you see them, don't ignore not just the poor. What's he say? Your own flesh and blood. The wording here for the poor, the homeless poor, is the same word we could put together to say alien or refugee or immigrant. When you see that, literally, it's the word homeless without possessions wandering around. When you see that person, you must begin to see them not as a them, but as you. You are them and they are you. Compassion identifies them as us. He's saying they're your own flesh and blood. Like flesh and blood in the Bible means family. That would have been very offensive to say to them that refugee who's not an Israelite by birth is your family. He says, in order to engage the poor, you must see that you have more in common with them as fellow image bearers of God than you have differences. You must learn to transcend tribalism, and it is tribalism. Tribalism, the tribalism of blood, the tribalism of class, the tribalism of success. If you're going to engage poverty from your heart, you must believe that when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, that he's not just talking about them, that he's talking about us. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you that are materially poor. Like all of us are poor in different ways. All of us have a poverty of the soul at least. And that's why over and over again Moses says throughout the Torah, remember when you leave Egypt and you go into a place of prosperity, we tend to forget when we move from poverty to prosperity, we forget where we came from. He says, don't forget your zip code. You too were once, what? Aliens. Sojourners refugees. What, what he's tapping into is just the motivation for why. Like, it must be tied to deep compassion. It must be tied to the gospel, like what we believe about Jesus. The only thing that will change your heart to engage the poor with your resources is not if you are impelled to do it or compelled to do it, but if you actually believe that you're spiritually poor and that apart from the grace of God, you're nothing, and that you, without the grace of God, would be completely lost. And when you see a poor person, you say, as they are, so am I, as I am, so are they. We remember that Jesus became poor so that we could become rich. Then we're able to look at the poor and see Jesus in them, to see ourselves in them. And that's why John Wesley said it like this, put yourself in the place of every poor man 
and deal with him as you would deal, God deal with you. I mean, like, think about it. It takes away every excuse why you wouldn't get engaged. Like, what are, what are our excuses for not engaging poverty? Well, like, one of the ones I hear a lot is um, people bring this on themselves, right? They make poor decisions, have poor ways, and therefore they're poor. Okay, let's just grant that that's true. Let's just, let's just say hypothetically that all poverty were the result of individual choices. What if God said that about you in terms of salvation? Well, they just made poor choices to sin, went after other gods. I'm not helping. It's not my responsibility. Like, if God treated us that way, none of us would be saved. None of us would have a relationship with God. Does anybody understand what I'm saying? Yes, of course. God doesn't say that about his grace. He says, yeah, they made really bad decisions, and I'm still going to move towards them with my grace. I'm still going to love them furiously, because it's not about what they've done. It's about who I am. I am love. And that's the kind of compassion that we need to begin to arrange our lives to see and engage the material poor, to have God's eyes, to have his heart, to do what he does. And man, when you begin to engage the poor like that, it will change you. You find your assumptions and prejudices begin to fall away. We have this great ministry that we are a part of, we didn't start, called the Poor House. Many of our members and people in our community uh, are helping homeless brothers and sisters move off the streets and into permanent housing. And man, you spend five minutes with folks that live on the street, that are coming off the streets, and you begin to listen to their stories and look in their eyes, not just as poor people, but as fellow image bearers created in the image of God. And you begin to realize you have common humanity with these people, right? Like, they, like you, have families. They, like you, had dreams and have dreams for their life. They have hopes for their life. They've had setbacks just like you and me. They've got struggles and addictions just like you and me. And you begin to see, wow, the, my avoidance and indifference towards the poor says more about me than it does about them. God says, you cannot love me without loving your neighbor. And so it starts with compassion. It moves out then into action, right? Advocacy. Starts in the heart, understanding and seeing myself as God sees me, seeing my neighbor as God sees them. Then it moves out into tangible action. It's more than empathy, right? It's more than just feeling bad or feeling sorry or feeling ashamed or feeling guilty. It's action. Notice all these things here. He says, what's the fast that I choose? Break the chains of wickedness. Shatter the bonds. Tear off every yoke. Set the oppressed free. Share your bread with the hungry. Bring people into your home. Provide shelter and housing for the poor. Poverty is complex. And it will require complex solutions and sustained effort. But we've got to make sure that we're aiming at the right things. And here God draws our attention to the structures that perpetuate poverty. This idea of bonds and yokes, these are things that were put on beasts of burdens. They were structures that were created to make animals submit. He's saying this is the life of poverty for many people in the world. They are under the yoke they are trapped in systems that press them down. And so what we need to do, he says, is not just work to change individuals' lives, but work to change the social conditions and structures that lock people into poverty and psychologically degrade them and make them feel like animals. And by the way, this conversation degrades both the wealthy and the poor. It degrades the wealthy because it teaches them that they're superior, and it degrades the poor because it teaches them that they're inferior. Oppression here, the word is literally the shattered ones. Poverty, 
shatters people. And he calls us to engage. And what fasting does is it, it unifies, it connects. When a group protests, Scott McKnight says, by fasting, they both negate one relationship with the haves. And they affirm another relationship with the have-nots. Since the structures of power always have sufficient food, fasting is not only refusing relationship, it is also protesting the power structures that exist. I step away from what's normal to me having food all the time, three meals a day, which is abnormal for the rest of the world. And I step into this space, and I feel in my body something changed. I now identify in a different way with what it's like to be hungry, what it's like to be desperate, what it's like to feel powerless. And that leads then finally to generosity. Compassion, advocacy, generosity. Verse 10, if you offer yourself to the hungry, satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness. This pouring out here is the pouring out and the sharing of our resources, right? It's giving our time, our energy, our money, our affections, our homes, our gifts to relieve others' suffering. Biblical justice and stewardship means that everything that I have belongs to God. It's not mine. God has given it to me, as he told Abraham, so that I can be a blessing to others. So any blessing that I have is only given to me so that I can open up my hands and share with other people. That means that the poor have claims on me. I'm not doing charity. They have claims on my stuff. I don't like that. I like to own my stuff. But Jesus is constantly telling parables in the New Testament about you're a manager, you're a steward, you're a clerk. This stuff doesn't belong to you. Stop clutching it as if it were your life and your happiness. I have eternal riches that I've made available to you. And I've entrusted you with this little bit of material finances, this $30,000 a year salary, this $100,000 a year salary, this million dollar a year, whatever it is. But I've given this to you. And to refuse to give it to others is not just selfish, it is unjust. John Christensen, a pastor a long time ago, said, not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs. And so what fasting does is it reminds us that we are stewards. It prepares us to have, on a practical note, something to give. Like how many times you said, I wish I had something to give right now, but I've spent to the edges of my field. I have nothing left. I'm over leveraged. I'm overextended. I have no cash. You do have money, you just don't have available money. And what fasting does, that's why Jesus, I think, connects fasting and almsgiving in Matthew 6. Because when we fast, amazingly, we're not spending money on food, now we have something to give. It's very practical, right? And so, biblically and historically, there's always been a deep connection between fasting and almsgiving. Again, we said the church fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays for centuries. And on those days they would fast. We have a document going back to 150 AD, the shepherd of Hermas, and he instructs the congregation Take the money that you would have spent on food, set it aside for the poor for their benefit, right? What we give up in food, Scott McKnight says, can be converted to gifts to the poor, can be converted into time spent relieving injustices. So let me just close with this because we are out of time. I have more sermon as usual than time. U.S. Christians possess $5 trillion in the next 30 years, there will be the largest transfer of wealth in the history of Christianity. 
passing between this older generation and the up-and-coming generation. Now, we could talk on that level, and there's a lot to be said about global realities around the church. But I want to just avoid the paralysis of that and just bring this down and make this so practical. What if you were to start small and local and just work your way out in concentric circles? What if you were to not get paralyzed by what's happening globally, but just to say, how could I fast to stand in solidarity with the poor right here in this community? What would that look like for us to fast, to be able to create margin for generosity and to create identification with our brothers and sisters who struggle to have access to their basic daily needs right here in our own community? There are some among us here, and there are many out in our community who don't have access to those realities for various reasons, okay? So I just want to encourage us with these practical steps. Maybe during Lent, this becomes an opportunity to fast, not just to discern the will of God for your life, not just for detoxing and cleansing and health reasons, but actually to stand in solidarity with the poor, to pray for God's eyes and God's heart, to ask God, who would you have me bless today? You have blessed me with these things. Who would you have me bless? And how can I take this money that I would have spent and begin to intentionally, strategically, creatively with my missional community and others in the community of faith scheme for the kingdom of God? I mean, how fun would that be? We had a missional community that did that a couple years ago when we did our generosity series. They actually said, every week we're going to take up a collection and we're going to take this money and just give it away. And they've had a lot of fun with that and I think they're still doing it. Now, if they're not, it was a good idea at the time. Um, you could do that. You could fast in solidarity with a particular group of people, like refugees, right? There's a next slide here. Um, this is what a refugee eats their relief rations on a daily basis, on the regular, overseas. You could choose to identify yourself with brothers and sisters around the world and say, we are going to as a family, I'm going to as a single person with roommates, with college friends, we are going to fast and eat relief rations to remind ourselves how others are living around the world, pray for them, and to begin to take money and invest it towards their wholeness. A great book that I would encourage you to check out also here is A Place at the Table, 40 Days of Solidarity with the Poor by Chris Say. It's an amazing guide to how you could, with prayers and intentionality and real practical suggestions, begin to live into and experiment with this. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I just want to encourage us again, let's experiment right? Let's, let's just experiment and let's see, what is God inviting me to do? How could fasting help me get engaged with God's heart? And again, there's no power in the fasting. If there was, God wouldn't have had to, Isaiah wouldn't have had to write this in the first place. Fasting in and of itself, not the answer. But fasting before the Lord with open hands, humble hearts, you can experience day by day his transformation. This is not natural way to live, but it is the life that God wants us to live as his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder of your goodness. Thank you that you came in solidarity with us to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we should have died, and to rise again to give us resurrection power, to cancel our allegiances to the gods of mammon, to the gods of success and tribalism and uh, and any other way of living that is not in alignment with your heart for your people. And God, I, I thank you that you came to give us your heart, give us your spirit. God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, stir up in us compassion to see as you see, to feel as you feel, to do as you have done in Jesus Christ. Would you make us conduits of living into that reality this week in our communities? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.